All for one family on stage. Their first gig, The Cars. It didn't go in that we could actually be meeting our producer or that this could be a major record year for us. If you feel the emotion in every song, you give across the emotion of the song. You have been a wonderful audience and we will remember this. We will be back. When you're put in a situation where you have to perform, where you have to deliver, no matter what, something happens. That's why we're doing it. We're doing it because we love it. Hi, this is Noel Eccles. I'm a percussionist and I played on Aaron Shore on Forgiven Not Forgotten. And you're listening to Corescast. Hi, welcome to episode four of Corescast. I begin this week's episode speaking with Noel Eccles. He's part of the renowned Moving Hearts, as well as the Riverdance Orchestra and the RTE National Symphony Orchestra. He's contributed percussion to film scores such as The Mask and Twelfth Night, and has worked alongside artists such as U2, Mary Black, Dolores Keane and Christy Moore. Noel has rich connections to Irish music, starting from just the age of 18. Noel kindly gave of his time, and I was able to catch up with him to discuss where this musical journey began, and how he ended up playing on the Corps' first album, Forgiven Not Forgotten. It's wonderful to take some of your time. I'm so thankful that you were willing to participate in this and, and have some Pleasure. moments chatting. I think we should be able to at least reminisce on some, some fun times and yeah. get a better understanding of how, how you became involved with the track and involved with the album at all and with the band. In all honesty, it's always a pleasure to talk about, about, about one's work. And mm. it's also a pleasure to talk about what's successful work, you know. <laughs> um, and also, I, I'm I I do tend to have quite a clear memory about things like this. I and it's what a lot of my colleagues will say. You know, I'll talk about maybe doing a film session and say, "Do you remember when we did um, the mask and that point where Cameron Diaz is in the walks into the bank and they're all going, what are you talking about? I don't remember any of this." You know, because wow. in those days they used to run the film. You know, the conductor would be conducting mm-hmm. the film. So it was stuff like this, you know, and uh, uh, and uh, I remember I tend to do because because I kind of they, they lodge in my brain musically, and then therefore the reference to the event is there. So it's, it's kind of nice, you know. It is kind of nice. I kind of been prefacing a lot of these interviews with um, the people I'm speaking to their background. So I'd like to ask you, sort of, how did how did music become a th- your life? Where where did it begin for you? Very early on, I mean, just around 11, 12, that sort of time, I, I had a fascination with drums. I'm originally from Belfast in Northern Ireland, so I was growing up in Belfast at the time and things were very rough, very heavy, you know, so that's, I'm 60 now, so that would have been 1970, just around that wow. time. Wow. And um, so I was interested in, I was interested in music. Um, but more so interested in the drums as a thing. And, and at school, uh, we were asked, did anybody want to learn instruments? You know, there was, it was a music class. It was a grammar school. And, uh, and the teacher went through the various instruments. And lastly, he came to anybody want to learn drums. And the entire class put their hand up. Wow. And then he said, well, for the first year, you'll be playing on top of a table on a pad. And everybody put their hands down except me. I kept mine up. So I started then with a well, parapetetic teacher who used to travel around different schools. So I had a year with him and very quickly was, was getting it, kind of getting it. Mm. And he recommended that I go at the end of that year to a place called the City of Belfast School of Music, which was a, a, a municipal school, which is an evening school. So you went there and you did your theory classes and your ear training classes and then your instrument classes. And mm. then you played in a musical group 
whether it be what was called the Friday band, which was the junior band, and then the Saturday concert band and a youth orchestra. What was really great about that was it was one of the few non-denominational events in Northern Ireland. So you had all these segregated sports because because um, the Protestants played played rugby and cricket and football, soccer, mm. and Catholics played GAA, Gaelic football and hurling and all these things. Yeah. So there was all that segregation. So all the normal places where people would be getting to know other members of society, that just didn't happen. Whereas in the School of Music, it was just, what's your grade? You're into a class there. You're yeah. in the Friday band. So from very, very early on, that whole thing was in my life where it was open. The people I met were just, they just brought other people, which was lovely, really, really lovely. To, I mean, I, to cut the long story short, I got to my A-level years. And you know, at that stage, I decided I wanted to do music. I had played in all sorts of youth orchestras and brass bands and small groups and stuff, but um, I applied to the Royal Academy in London, uh, the college, and I got a scholarship to that. And at the same time, just around, the, towards the end of my A-levels, I, I had a call from, what well, was a professional, were two professional orchestras in Belfast at the time. One was the BBC or Northern Ireland and the other was the Ulster Orchestra. Mm-hmm. And I got a call from the Ulster Orchestra to say, look, we need you as an extra player from September to December, could you do that? And I was like, well, I'm going to college, you know, and, the, and my teacher who was in the orchestra said, I'm like, you're going to make a fair few bob over that period of time. And so I, I delayed then going to college. Mm-hmm. At the, at, towards the end of that year, the orchestra in Dublin, um, the manager who I'd met, he'd heard me playing with the youth orchestra a year before, he rang me, and, but what he didn't tell me was he wanted me to come in as the principal player. So I was 19, wow. I was in principal percussion, what, what was the RTE, which is Radio Telefish Aaron, yep. the RTE Symphony Orchestra. So um, I, I was basically employed on a month-to-month contract for them because they were kind of sorting out some jobs and things. And come the following September or summer, I said, look, I won't be back in September because I'm going to music college. And the manager of the orchestra was like, well, don't be stupid. Why are you going to college? You've got a job here if you want. And I said, well, I'm only being employed monthly. Mm-hmm. And he said, right, I'll sort that out. And a couple of days later, I got a contract. I got a two-year contract for the position. So there I was, 19, on full salary with a professional symphony orchestra and uh, getting, and then getting lots and lots of experiences doing. Mm-hmm. So there were starting to be other little things because I was always interested in classical music. That's about my first training. Mm-hmm. But I always had a... Uh, you know, an eye for rock and roll, very much so. Like, I remember being completely blown away by Bohemian Rhapsody. You know, when that came up, because it was such a crossover at the time. Yeah. So, so, so that was that got me to Dublin. Between then, uh, so late seventies, I started to get involved in in traditional music. Mm. I, I was I joined a band called Moving Hearts, which which had. Uh, a lot of time on the road together. So I did that. I mean, I was doing that and playing in the symphony orchestra at the same time. Wow. What a mix. And, well, oh, totally. But also, yeah. I mean, at the time with everybody, any band that wanted percussion, I was doing it, you know. So there was a pub bar called the Bagot Inn in Dublin, mm-hmm. which is unfortunately is gone now. But um, I used to play there Monday and Tuesday with Moving Hearts, Wednesday with a band called Scullion, and then Thursday with a chap called Freddie White. And then Friday was my symphony orchestra concert, and then Saturday and Sunday moving hard to be around the country. That was my that was my regular week. So, uh, you know, I was just gigging, gigging, gigging all the time, mm-hmm. and and then on top of that, there'd be recording sessions with people and stuff like that. So during that time, I mean, early on in that time, I met Bill Whelan, who was who was producing lots of different records and stuff. So 
you know, he'd be doing commercials and he'd be doing, like he did a, an album with a guy, Freddie White, that was a band called, an album called Long Distance Runner. So there was that con those connections were being made. And there was also connections with other Irish people like um, Sean Davey, who was an Irish composer who, who was going to write classical for orchestra, but using lots of things. And, and early on in my relationship with Sean, I started using sort of different drums than the standard drum kit or standard orchestral drum. And that led to a certain number of things happening. So this is, and this is actually related to what really happens on Forgiven Never Forgotten. Then um, um, around, I did a few albums with people like Harsh Lars and like Dublin was an unbelievable scene at that time. Because mm. you had, we had this, we had this um, tax incentive where artists were given tax relief on the royalties from, and their creative royalties. It was a thing brought in by the government, which which ended, which meant that lots. I mean, apart from people who were kind of under the radar, lots of writers and lots of uh, um, painters and, and graphic designers and stuff like that, who were very you know big in their business and filmmakers and stuff. There were lots of musicians around Dublin. There were like the Spandau Ballet, Def Leppard, the Thompson Twins, and the Waterboys. There was all these mm -hmm. bands who had albums that had been big and they all moved to Dublin because their royalties were coming obviously a year later. So the nightclub scene was all of these guys, you know, it was mullets and models. Mm, <laughs> literally. So, um, so it became this thing that, that and there were studios springing up everywhere because those bands would come in and say, well, we need a studio for six months or we need a studio for a year. So that, that scene was going on. And at the same time, there was a move um, to get movie soundtracks because the movies were starting to be shot in Ireland. It was quite a lot of things. And there'd been some success with things like My Left Foot, which had got the Oscar, couple of Oscars and Dancing at Lunasa and things like this. These beautiful, movies beautiful. Yeah. So they were, the soundtracks were being recorded in Dublin for those, but then other soundtracks were being done as well. So you had all of this stuff going on. And then the live scene was rocking as well. So you had that. So um, that's really, that's kind of, that to a point is my musical history up to early 90s. Mm, mm. Okay. Very, very vibrant, doing lots and lots of different things. We had gone through a major recession in the early 80s. Um, we come out, things were really starting to happen. There was a whole feeling of the Celtic Tiger thing um, going on. Um, I had worked with an artist called Eleanor McAvoy, who was a songwriter, she had a, she, she was a violinist actually in the symphony orchestra, that's how I met her. And she um, wrote this, she wrote a batch of songs and she had this song, which was called Only a Woman's Heart. And it, 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 it became the lead song on an album, was the title song on an album, which was a kind of celebration of Irish women in the music business. Beautiful. Uh, and so I produced the first, so I produced that song and played in the band with her. And that song, like, it was the biggest selling album in Ireland ever, something like, you know, it still is. It's a massive, massive. There wasn't a home in the, in the country that didn't have a copy mm. of that album. And a cassette in the car. That's sure. the, that was the joke. <laughs> so um, at that time, so that was at the same time. Um, so I was working with Eleanor. I went off, we, I took a year off of Symphony Orchestra because she signed to Geffen. Nothing. A guy called Tom Zuta signed her. I don't know if you've ever seen the Motley Crue movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Tom Zuta appears, and he's the guy from Electra that signs the Motley oh. Crew. So, so, 
So Eleanor, I, I, so I toured for a year with Eleanor, which, which took us to America. And at that time, the Cranberries were really happening. Yeah. And Linger was just on the radio all the time. So, so this was around we 92. Yes. So I had, as I said, taken my time out of, of, uh, out of the orchestra because that was a salaried position. Mm. And I had a year's leave of absence. So I, I, I kind of committed to doing the thing with Eleanor. So during the course of that, I got, a, um, or just before that, in fact, as I know, at another event, I was asked by Bill Whelan. He'd been commissioned to write a piece about this area in the west of Ireland and Mayo called the Cata Fields, which were these caves that they found from like 5,000 years. And he called me and said, look, I'm looking for a sound that's earth shattering. He said, I want it to be, he said, I'm thinking a big drum, but I don't know what, how, what we can do with that. He said, but I want it to be like a bar run, the Irish mm-hmm. frame run. He said, but I also want it to be played in a very physical way as well. And I said, well, look, really what you're thinking, talking about is some of the lower orchestral drums or the Asian drums, like taiko drums, this type of thing. And he said, well, look, I'm, I'm going to write, I'm writing this piece and I'm thinking of putting this section in it for these drums. And I said, well, the way, and I said, well, look, I'll put together the players for that. So what I did was I got a set of a, a group of pipe band drummers, you know, the bagpipes and pipe drums. Yeah, yeah. Right? Now, the thing with that type of drumming is it's very, very intricate, very stylized, very exact, mm. very, like you'll have 10 guys playing absolutely exactly the same thing. So it just sounded like one drum. Wow. So I got them together and, and then, but, the, but, but they were, they were kind of, they were what made it really special, but actually getting them to play on the type of drums that they played on, which were very different to what they would normally play on, created a whole other thing. Yeah. So, so really, really what, I, what we were doing was trying to create the, the, the uh, kind of the, the style of the bar on and the way that's played, but on a drum that could sit in an acoustic like a concert hall. Because a bar on in a concert hall just sounds like a wet... Uh, you know, it's going nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. So we had this, these 10 drummers playing these, basically all orchestral drums, orchestral bass drums, field drums, tenor drums, that mostly had natural skins on them. And they were playing mm. with very big, thick sticks. So that created something. So that was really, now I had prior to that on a few, on an album with a guy called Sean Davey, I had played, he wrote a piece called Grogna Whale, which was a suite of, suite of songs with Grace O'Malley, who's this Irish chieftain queen. Mm-hmm. Um, on that, again, he wanted the baron imitated, but in a way it could be working in orchestra. So I had played on these particular types of low drums. So I'd done that myself prior to that, which yeah. would have been around, I think, about 87, 88, that sort of thing. So I always had this idea in my head that you could supplement the baron with orchestral drums. I got a, I, got, I then had a call to say, could I come into the studio? Bill Williams, right? I had this thing he wanted to record. And I was in, on tour with Eleanor McAvoy at the time. And in Scott, we were in, I think we were in Scotland or UK anyway, and uh, I couldn't do the session anyway. But uh, so that well, that was fine. That was just whatever happened. And and I know I know the guy that did do it, the guy called Desi Reynolds, who's the other drummer on the on the, the on the Aaron Shore. So Bill Bill and Bill was doing this thing which I couldn't do. So we were we 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 finished our UK tour and we were driving back, or in fact, sorry, in the meantime we'd been to America and back, and we were we had. We had done some oil work in, in Scotland. We were driving back across the border when the Eurovision Song Contest was on the radio. And we had 
we had friends um, who was Charlie McGettigan and, and um, they were the Irish entry. So we, we, we decided, the guitar player from the band, Bill Shanley and myself, decided we'd stop and we'd go in and watch them on the... Mm-hmm. So we stopped and we watched them and then we headed off again in the car. So we were driving and we were approaching Dublin and the interval act of this Eurovision came on. And the group that started to sing at the beginning it was a group called Anuna, mm-hmm. who I'd done loads of work with prior to this because I knew I knew I knew Michael McLennie's the composer very well, and again I'd used those big drums on their things. So, so I, so they start. I said, "Oh, there's Anuna." I didn't know they do in the Eurovision, and then, and then they, they and then they, they so the original Riverdance piece came onto the Eurovision. Um. So I, I, I just had no idea what it was. Then the drums came in. Now, you see, I, I hadn't played on that, as I said. I hadn't played that. But the drums came on, and they were. I thought, okay, well, that's kind of what we were doing, but there's a lot of electronics in that. It's not all real drums. Um, and then Flatley's feet came on, and I thought it was interference on the track. Because then listen to this on the radio. You see in the car. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, got home. Next morning, put on the... Television, in a Sunday morning, put on the television, put on the news, and there was Riverdance on it. I was like, wow, goodness me. So shortly after that, contact, look, we're making this into a full-length show. We need you to come into the studio. That's blah, blah, blah. So, like, I, so from then, I was very heavily involved in all of that. So we recorded mm-hmm. all the drums and percussion and that and uh, put a lot of our own ideas into it, put a lot of it. There was a lot of input into it. And that then went on to become... A, a, a month-long thing in the Point Depot in Dublin. We put the show yeah. on, and blah, 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 all this sort of stuff. And then we went to UK, mm-hmm. and all the, during that time, there was new bits of pieces being added to Riverdance as well. At the time, you know, they, that doesn't work. Let's put this in. This doesn't work. Try something else. So I was aware around the time that we were recording. I think we were recording Riverdance tracks, but it was certainly. Sometime around the same time, I can remember being aware of this band being in from Dundalk. Or so I was told, and I was like, <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're all their family and they're kind of a pop band. Nobody saw them. Yeah. You didn't meet them in the studio. Um, there was no, like, in those days, you know, we would all know all the engineers. We'd all know each other. We'd all pop into each other's sessions. There was no, none of that. Their wow. manager didn't allow it, really. So, uh, so you know, that's kind of that was my first hearing of them. Then, as we were back in, we I think we'd been to done the done the the, the Riverdance run in Dublin. We'd gone to London and then and put it on Hammersmith for a month and then come back to Dublin. And during the time when we were in Dublin, um, I got a call for Bill to say, "Listen, I want to record some drums for this track for it's for an American producer." Mm-hmm. Aaron Shaw. It obviously features twice on the album. Mm-hmm. It bookends the album. The album starts with it, with with just stripped bare in the studio, just the chords. And then the mm-hmm. final track obviously comes into where your your appearance is. Mm-hmm. What did I have spoken to Simon Franklin and Ryan Freeland, um, who did the production on getting the the track sent by David over for you to hear and and then play upon. Yeah. Can you remember what the track sounded like without you guys on it? Well, it was just a gap. Really? Just, yeah, there was just a gap um, for the. I think I think there's a, like an initial eight bar thing, and then the orchestra, and then the orchestra and the band come back in again. So there was just a there was just a click through that section. 
Wow. Um, and w- one of the, you know, like there was the build through it, the build, the build, the build, and then it stopped. And it was just chuck, 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 chuck. That's all oh, you got. I'd love to have heard that. That's great. Yeah, so you see, you see, well, that, that's really one of the things with that type of, 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 of that type of drumming is that, that it's, like, it's like any orchestration as such. You are building up a depth of orchestration and you are building up different colours within that. If we played everything on the same drum mm. 10 times, it just wouldn't, it would sound bigger, but it would start to sound, it was actually in some ways it starts to co- contract because you're filling the same audio space. But because we were laying different types of drums, I think I played a hand drum on it as well, if I'm not mistaken, some sort of a djembe too, just to give it a col- another little colour. So sometimes the, the sound of a hand on a skin mm. gives you another, another essence as well. So there was that. So that's what it would have been like, you know, we'd have just got, this is what you do, and then you just play, wow. play all, all the way through out to the end. Um, I don't remember how big the orchestration was on it when we got it. I don't remember it being as big as it is now. Yeah. Or maybe we didn't hear. Sometimes in the studio, they don't let you hear everything that's going on just to, so you don't get confused. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, you can hear too much information. stuff. So, so that's what I, I remember that. I do remember that. One of the things was that, that the pattern itself that is that is on it. Well, but has a flamenco feel to it yeah although it's, very, although it's very slow it's like a, 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 a way reduced tempo and the, at that time i was working on a thing with a flamenco dancer in river dance maria pachas which had a similar very similar pattern so the pattern has a nod to that as well oh. so the two of us and, and one of the things you see one of the things we discovered as well recording that type of drumming was if you do it really quietly first then you play it a little bit louder so you do it quietly with not very hard sticks, then a little bit louder, and then you play it very forcefully. So you get that, you get the, the movement of air and the quiet thing. You get the medium kind of attack in the middle one, and then the real sharp attack on the top. So, so we were, at, you know, we had developed that kind of technique from doing the other stuff, doing the mm-hmm. river dance stuff. So that was, that was uh, you know, that's where that track was, that's when that track was recorded. That style of drumming is now, as I said earlier on, as bef- we were doing it before the Hans Zimmer thing was all about and all of that sort of movie soundtrack. And also nowadays, you go to any Celtic show, it will have big drums in the tracks. Yeah. I mean, Celtic women, uh, you know, they had, they had the two drums and percussion on the stage, either side of the stage with all the gear and all that stuff. And it's, you know, a lot of, it's, a lot of it is show as well, because it is, you are in show business. Mm. But the essence of that sound is is what people and there, you know there are times there's a few people who have who have who have made a living doing that now who have credited us as being the people who set that up and for them wow. and stuff and it's nice that that happened. I jumped forward about maybe about I think six months or maybe even a year. Riverdance was in the Pantages Theatre in Los Angeles, 
mm-hmm. and the visitors or the guests that were coming or the audience that was coming to see it but a lot of them VIPs was like a roll call of the music industry and like we were meeting our heroes every night there was just people coming along and like I remember Desi and myself sitting in the dressing room in Pantages and Bert Bacharach walked in wow and everybody else had gone there was just the two of us and he was just there and he was saying, hey man, just come down and say how great the band was, love it, love it. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so that sort of stuff was going on. But I was approached um, to, at the time when I, when, I, when I was in Riverdance, I was the musical director of that. So I was kind of, as well as playing in it, I was uh, kind of minding everything about mm. you. And stuff. Um, I got a call to say, there's this particular producer wanted to use some of the musicians from the band and he wanted them he was doing a uh, he was doing a soundtrack for an animation movie and they had a celtic scene in it and it was david foster mm. and so i met him i'd already met him actually at the opening night party um and i met him a couple of weeks later then and we talked about who he wanted and what what was required and we worked out a schedule because we were obviously doing the show and we were, had to try and fit the sessions in during the daytime and we also you know, also organise what equipment we need hired and all this sort of stuff. And this is for Quest for Camelot, correct? That's the Quest for Camelot, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and that was the first time in the studio, Carol Berger-Sayer was, was, was writing the songs. And during the time in the sessions, I heard it on Aaron Shore. I heard it in, I certainly heard it in the studio because I never heard it in its context. Mm. Um, and I don't know if it was used in the film. No. Okay. Right. Well then. Well, but that's where I. Well then. Well then. Maybe he was just playing it to let us hear what it had turned out like. Yeah. And me, and maybe because he was. That's what we were going for on the tracks that he was recording. Nice. So we did. So we did record. I mean, I en- ended up having quite a few days in the studio with him, and also he used um, a fiddle player called Eileen Ivers, and um, a baron player called Jimmy Higgins, mm-hmm. and Desmore, who was the guitar player, uh, on Riverdance. He played on it as well. And they used quite a few of the singers who would, would they would have originally been in the Anuna, who then went off on the road with that. So, so he used that. Now, I do know that the, some of the girls played on some of the tracks in Quest for Camelot. Ah. So, some of the chords, I mean, I mean, I think. Yeah, I didn't know uh, that. That's completely yeah, new to me. Yeah, I think Sharon, I think it's Sharon. actually a section with Tin Whistle, Fiddle and Bar on, so the freedom on it. Um, nice. But that, so that's, that, that, you know, that was a connection to it, to, to that track as well. So that had kind of lingered on through that. Um, I do remember that we had a real difficulty getting paid because there was disputes within the producers of it. And wow. we had to, and one of the things, you may know this, if you're a musician in America, it's very heavy unionized. Hmm. So what, one of the things that had to happen with us is we had to join unions wherever we were as part of the touring thing. So yeah. the company covered that, what we were doing. But to be, when we were in LA, we had to buy, I think it was Local 47 was the union. We had to join that union at a much, because we were earning a lot more money, we had to earn it at, join it at a much higher rate. Mm. But in actual fact, they became really useful. They got us paid, basically. Perfect. Yeah. They did what they were supposed to do. But I also remember, they, re- they rented all the percussion gear and one of the days, there was a couple of different percussion players came in to have a look at what I was doing because I was doing that thing of the three layers of drums mm, mm. using different sticks, different. So they were, and I, I, I turned, if you're, if you're where the, just, you know, I'd have been playing here, playing sideways, but at the, at looking at the, 
uh, the shoot into the control room. So I, I turned the drum around so the drum was facing up so they couldn't see what I was doing. <laughs> Hiding your secrets. Hiding the secrets, yeah, yeah. Um, but I also remember that there was a cricket in that room, in the room, the studio room, which used to start kicking off at about seven o'clock in the evening. And for, <laughs> for a week, we were trying to find it. But anyway, but anyway, we, we had to be back in the panty edges by eight o'clock anyway for the show, so it didn't affect me too much. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so that's kind of that's kind of where that has that 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 has uh, that that got to really. Mm. That's, that's the connection to that album. I did a, a track with Sharon a couple of years ago on uh, her solo album, and there was an event. I think about two thousand and three, we we hosted the Special Olympics, the World Games in Dublin. Mm -hmm. and of course played at that and the producer of that event was a chap called John McCoggan who was the producer of River, or the director of Riverdance and he, he, he commissioned me to write a big percussion thing for a massive amount of players and he had this idea that Sharon would play in it as well but she, Sharon just wasn't up for it she didn't like the idea she didn't oh. she's, she's quite shy you know she's, she's great she's great but I can remember sitting in the in the studio they were recording something in Westland Studios in Dublin Mm -hmm. and, the, and John McCall was saying, well, you know, I had this idea that we have you carried in by these six strapping men. And she was like, no. <laughs> oh, I could see it now. Wow. track with Sharon her kids were in and stuff and uh, but she's lovely you know and very like just very easy yeah um, yeah and, was, and, and very appreciative of what we would do you know mm. Mm. it's a great album I really loved her yeah. solo stuff uh, I saw I saw a lot of a lot of shows probably 10-15 shows through her solo tours well, great really great stuff it sounded amazing it sounded wow. amazing. so and obviously Anto was was on those with her as well so right. added yeah. to that link yeah of course of course he's in moving hearts with me he's incredible know? on moving heart he's he's just phenomenal yeah yeah he's great he's such a such a, a wit and such a great knowledge and, and uh you know it's been a joy just we, we, we we've been kind of doing things over the last uh, 10 years maybe half a dozen shows or dozen shows a year and really nice get together a couple of weeks go out go to spain go to france go to italy yeah lovely you know and have a great great time and then uh, and we were we were due to do a lot of stuff this summer in fact which mm. that all went you know so uh, from, the, from the communication i've had with him down the years he, he always talks of uh moving hearts and what an inspiration it was uh to him when he was a, a young boy growing up playing the guitar mm -hmm. And to now be playing as part of the band that was such an inspiration to his musical career is just yeah. like phenomenal. Oh, it's great. It's great. But the, Beautiful. But that, I mean, you know, the hearts, the hearts are, are full of legends in the sense mm. that you have Donald Lunny, who's like 
what the, the kind of godfather of traditional music in Ireland, or the godfather of the development of traditional music in Ireland, um, and someone who has given us all so much time and information and 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 duties really and and inspire, inspiration, and then you have this kind of really far out right bebop saxophone player Keith Donald who plays jigs and reels on the on the soprano oh. uh, and then of Alan who's just he's the uh, he's the the Eric Clapton of the Ellen Pipes mm. and whistle. Oh, he'd probably prefer to be Donald Fagan because he's yeah. Like, him and Andrew are mad Steely Dan fans, so it's a <laughs> but yeah, so it's a group of it's a really really special group of people, and uh, mm. yeah, something it's uh, it, it, you know I just hope that we don't I hope we manage to get some more stuff together again soon. You know. Oh, I hope so. That'd be wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Be wonderful. There's definitely there's definitely the audience for it. Well, yeah, I think so. I think so. And also, I mean, I know Keith Duffy as well. Keith and I would regularly. I, I teach at the conservatoire in Dublin and uh, uh-huh. on my breaks uh, there's a particular coffee shop that I go into and, and he would often be there and we bemoan the music industry and what yeah. Of people, you know, and, uh, yeah Keith's lovely Keith's really yeah. lovely there always used to be a joke you know that they used to have to the two of them had to stand at the back of the stage in a hole because <laughs> <laughs> you're not going to get too big a, guitar, a taller guitar player and biggest player <laughs> You know? They're huge. They are huge. Oh, definitely. You can definitely pick them out in a crowd. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. 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 One little thing I'll tell you, which I'm pretty sure Desi will bring up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, and we know, and I know that the, the, I know that the drums were used pre for some of the live show events. They were used yes. for their coming on stage. Exactly. We were never paid for the for those sessions. Wow. We were never paid. Now it's nothing to do with the guy, the guy, the band. Yeah. It's the management. And all that as I said, there was disputes for Bill Wheeler and all sorts of stuff. So we never got Desi and I never got paid for it. Right? Wow. So um and furthermore, what would have happened as well is that I would have had my cartage company move all the equipment and so I would have paid for that. And then so so that's but and it's the nature of our business. It's sometimes the biggest things that uh, are the hardest to to trace up. So there's a little bit of insight that you probably didn't expect. Thank you so much for spending some time chatting. Now it's really lovely to get that insight of your history and your background in music and how it came to be that you were on the album, and then the experience itself of recording on the album as well. I'm so grateful for your time. It's been lovely to chat, and thank you. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. I had the great fortune of being able to spend a few moments chatting with Desi Reynolds, who accompanied Noel on playing drums on Forgiven Not Forgotten. Desi's involvement with Irish music also spans many decades, working with notable artists such as Sinead O'Connor and Daniel O'Donnell. Desi is often found as an integral part of Riverdance the Show, which has toured worldwide for many years, and he also performs with the RTE Concert and Symphony Orchestras. How are you, Simon? Nice to hear you. I don't know what um, Noel told you. We went into the studio. We overdubbed uh, drums on an existing um, track that Simon Phillips had um, done. And that's it. With a ticker element in it that was just blank for you guys to fill in? Yeah. Well, that's like, I mean, it's like, what, 25 years ago, is it? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) 
because we just went in and and played on this gap that's correct uh, with a click track on it that's really the extent of it you didn't even get paid either ah no <laughs> although it's 25 years ago it's the one thing i fucking remember oh wow <laughs> i wasn't go i wasn't going to say anything about that but he already Noel has already told you. It's mad. It's mad. It really is. It is. Yeah, it's crazy because, um, like, I mean, we. I know why we didn't get paid because we couldn't find out who was to pay us. That's why. Mm. And uh, we couldn't. We couldn't track down and get to the bottom of who was going to pay us. And it was due, due, We were led from one thing to another and from one person to another. And like trying to get to David Foster in LA, can you imagine that? Oh, that's impossible. Yeah. And he was saying that you used a lot of different unions to be able to get access to, um, you know, being paid in different countries that you were touring in. And yeah, it sounds a real nightmare. Yeah. But that's funny enough, that's the one that's the thing that I remember about that session is getting no money for it. <laughs> I see why you're laughing because I laugh at it too. I mean, it was it was quite a big deal at the time, and uh, it's it just shows you, Simon. The bigger the deal, the bigger the hassle. Exactly. You know, you do a favor for a friend, or you play on this guy you've known for ages. Track, you get paid. Everything's bygones be bygones. It'll all be work. Somebody big come along, you can easily be lost. I guess. That's right. Yeah, because uh, the, nobody say, "Well, who booked you?" Well, I. You know, and um, trying to trace the very first phone call you got, yeah, and it could have been anybody, you know. But um, that's 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 very true, yeah. But that's that's about it. I mean, what I'm telling you now is, oh, we just went in, did that thing, and went home, and we saw nobody, had no communication with anybody either. You did work with the cause prior to this, though. Once, once at least, because I've got a recording of you on December '94. You played drums on Love to Love You for them? possible because um i mean this isn't um, something that nobody would know but in the course in the early days the the young girl who played the drums caroline um many times on tv shows i would play i would play the drums for her you know what i mean oh wow that's so, so cool yeah yeah i yeah it makes sense because you were listed under the credits as in the band for the for the tv production it was lots of different irish families doing a, a mock uh rte kind of family christmas get together and you were listed in the band as the drummer and when they she she was on bowron but you could hear a drum kit in the background yeah that, that'd that be correct yeah in fact it's hard to remember at that stage there was an awful lot of um, tv shows in ireland uh, recording tv shows and the chorus would be on quite a lot of them. And she, I would have been in the band and uh, she would play the barrow and I would have played the kitchen. Yeah. Wow. That's so cool. 
Did you also work uh, at all on the uh, the series An Eye on the Music? Yeah, with Bill Whelan. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there was a uh, he um, he 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 brought in I think a different composer every week for that show. That's it. Um, um, yeah, from very from people. I remember Midyear was on it, uh, Elmer Bernstein, mm-hmm. and every week it was a different composer. That's right, uh, and Jimmy Webb. And Bill, Bill is big. Uh, he's a big friend of Jimmy Webb's. Yeah, it's beautiful stuff. But that was the first ever time the cause were on television in 1991. Wow, Jesus Christ! Um, yeah, it's a, it's a long time ago. I, I yeah. Um, uh, there, were, there were very uh, many other people, and I can't remember who they are now, Simon. It's just those ones stand out in my head. Yeah, yeah. Because um, Bill Whelan did the original production for the demos for the cause before they were signed. Were you aware of that, or did you have any involvement in those demos at all? No, I didn't. Not, to, not, not, not that I can remember. Um, no, my, my only memory of the cause and me is that one recording <laughs> for us. Reason, <laughs> and uh, I didn't even know. I have, like I say, it's twenty-five years ago, so I had no knowledge whether it was either on an album or whether it was just on the cutting room floor. I don't had no clue. Wow, wow. Well, your credits—you know—you're credited by name on the album, so it definitely got there. It definitely got there, even if you weren't paid. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. That it's been really helpful. It's it's been um, great to at least have a pinpoint on the. Uh, a family Christmas and that background information regarding you drumming um, when Caroline was just starting out is really useful. So that's good. It's good. Thank you. Very good. Well, I'm, I'm wishing the best of luck with that. If I can be of any other help, just give me a call. Well, thank you so much for even taking the time now. It's been really great. All right, Tom. Thank you. Bye. Another huge thank you goes out to Noel and Desi for spending time with us to discuss their work on Forgiven, Not Forgotten. It's always wonderful to hear the insights of how somebody's career comes together and how their work is recognised to such an extent where they're asked to come in and specifically thought of for certain songs or certain percussion work. It's amazing to think we're four episodes in now and we've been able to discuss and gain insight from those that worked on the Cause first album. I hope you've enjoyed so far. I've had some incredible feedback from fans from all over the world And it's such a joy that this work is being listened to and the effort that's gone into finding and creating these interviews to build into a series is really being appreciated by so many. So thank you for reaching out and thank you for sharing the content. We've had hundreds and hundreds of people listening to the the very few episodes that have been put out so far. It sounds as though they've been richly enjoyed. So again, thank you so much. If you haven't listened to previous episodes, I'd again urge you to go back and listen to episodes one to three. At the moment, these are being released in chronological order, so some of the content I refer back to from previous episodes is starting to spill through into the interviews that we're currently listening to. I've already started editing the interview for the next episode in the season, which should be coming shortly. As always, please feel free to reach out if you have any questions or comments regarding episodes. I'd love fans on the show to discuss the content 
and maybe a section for fan stories to discuss uh, previous experiences with watching the cause live or meeting the band members. Get in touch if you have a story to share. It'd be lovely to have you on. Until next time, thank you again for tuning in. You've been listening to Causecast.